What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Hey guys, I'm here. We are working on season three of Miss Education, which makes me very excited. And I'm sitting across from Becca McNeil, who is a friend, a fellow SAISD parent, an education advocate, a journalist. I could go on and on, but I'm going to let her introduce herself. I think you covered all the bases. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hi, everybody. I'm here. I've been covering education in San Antonio for seven-ish years now, and um, have recently become an SAISD parent, enrolled my five- and three-year-old in the district. I'm kind of an advocate by nature, have to separate that a little bit from my job, but really leaning into it as a parent. This will kind of be a blend of (laughs) a meeting of the worlds. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool when your passion and your talent and your interests and they all sort of, and your friends, they all kind of collide. It's kind of convenient. So I've been trying to find people that I can sit down and talk to that I know are going to push a little on the ideas around education in San Antonio, but also who have a different perspective. Um, I think it's really important. My friends that know me very well tease me because harmony is my number one strength when I took the strength finder test. Oh. Um, and then individualization is also in my top five. So I am all about like, hey, man, whatever you want to do, you be you. I'm cool with it. We can have an intelligent discussion over it. I'm not going to try to change your mind, but I want to hear what your perspective is, you know? Well, this will um. be fun because I'm a, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram one. So I'm all about changing your mind. <laughs> So those are the people I I most like to talk to because it's usually a really interesting conversation. (laughs) Excellent. Yep. So tell everybody a little bit about how you got started professionally writing for and about education. So it's nothing magical. I was writing for the Rivard Report. They needed an education reporter. I was 28 and did not have kids at the time and thought I would be covering bake sales. Essentially. (laughs) I thought I would be covering, um, science fairs and stuff like that. And within a couple of months realized that it's, that is not the, that's not the situation. (laughs) If the, if you're doing your job, right. Um, this is all of the problems of our society start in the schoolhouse. Actually, they probably start sooner than that, but they come to public, come to the public in, Yeah, they definitely filter through, right? Yeah, that's when, I think that's when things come out of hiding and suddenly they're on display and we start testing them and it becomes evident and then you go, "Uh oh, okay, we have some things to deal with. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about when you first got into it and you were, were you visiting schools or were you kind of like on assignment or what, how did it My first assignment was go find the bright spots in SAISD. Go into the schools and find 
stories that no one is telling that are not gloom and doom. Go mm-hmm. figure out what's going right, which is a cool assignment. What'd and you find? What'd you figure out? I found engaged parents. I found schools trying to get magnets going. I found, I mean, my one of my first stories was Bonham and mm-hmm. the parents who were, you know, pushing really hard there. Um, a science teacher who was doing great stuff. I think I visited a lot of the urban core schools mostly at that point. You didn't get much further afield. Mm-hmm. Um, as my reporting has evolved, as I've evolved, I think that I would probably go back and look a little differently at some of those yeah. stories. I have been looking at things a little differently and the district has evolved and yeah, for sure. I've had the chance to go further and further afield, get into South sand, get into South side a little bit, North side, Northeast. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's grown, but I, I'm glad that it started with looking for the bright spots and that I was yeah. better trained to look for the solutions than to look for what's broken. If somebody's enacting a solution, it goes without saying that something's broken. Mm-hmm. So, I think that it's more helpful for the public to say, here's something going on. Here's how you can get involved. Here are the limitations of it. Here's the good it can mm-hmm. do. Here's what it can't touch. And that's good storytelling. And I think that it's a more hopeful, it's not, it doesn't beat people down so much because yeah. yeah. there's a real beat down narrative. What was your favorite story? Would oh, you gosh. Say? Like one or at of the least whole, a, of my yeah, whole like career a, so far? Yeah. Like, a, yeah. Or maybe just something you enjoyed. It's your go to place where you yeah you, uh, to, i'll tell you the truth the my favorite story i've ever written is actually i don't even need to think that hard um <laughs> it was for the current yeah <laughs> it was um so when greg jefferson went to the current he called me and he said hey uh do you want to write for us and i said does your deal cover education and he was like that's why i'm calling you because ah. we're gonna start but the task was take an audience that doesn't necessarily look for education. For education and stuff. so uh-huh. it was like try anything <laughs> <laughs> you know throw some swear words in there do what you have to do to get people <laughs> to like engage mm-hmm. and the first big story i did for them was called san antonio schools are still segregated mm. um by and then the subtitle is by income as much as by race and uh that was by far my favorite story i've ever done yeah and really um, set a trajectory for my reporting for the 74 million, for the Heckinger report, for a lot of other outlets. Were you worried at all? Like when you wrote it and when you knew, I mean, they have a pretty big reach. So were you a little <laughs> bit of like, oh shit, I'm going to say this. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I have that moment a lot. There are some yeah. moments when I say stuff and then go, I got to stay off social media for a while because this is going to get ugly. Um, it doesn't get, it doesn't get as ugly as people I mean, it does. But if you know how to read social media, yeah. you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. you can yeah. do it. But I will say that I get called out from both sides and that's that takes some learning mm-hmm. because there are people who say, you know, you didn't check your privilege here. You mm-hmm. are seeing this through a pretty white lens and then there's also people who will say are you calling me a bad person yeah (laughs) and the the answer to the first one is oh gosh i'm sorry let's try this again the answer to the second one is no i'm talking about the system that we're all playing into yeah so it's hard it's hard working for a system any system and 
be still remaining an individual in that system. Right. Right. So that's hard altogether. It's especially hard when you, this is the only job you've ever had is working for this system, any system. Sure. Like for me, I felt like I really, I mean, I started working when I was 22. I graduated from college and started working. I feel like so much of my own professional identity was shaped by the system I was working for. And how could it not be? Right. However, I never felt like a bad person doing any of the things that I was doing. (laughs) Right, right. You know what I mean? Like never once. Now I think back and I think like a lot of the conversation that I hear is how long a system is has been failing and how I think about, gosh, I worked there the entire time that that system failed. Mm. And that's yeah, hard. That hurts. That hurts. Yeah. At the same time, there's a ton of grace in there. There's grace that you go, okay, how do I do better now? Mm-hmm. What, where are people working to make this better and how do I get behind them? Yeah. And that's great. It is. Like, and, it, and actually, let's it's look forward. getting better. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. It's I. <laughs> um, there are days when I'm going like, yeah. Look at I look at my the school where my kids go at some of the other schools in SAISD. I hear um, a lot of different parent groups who really encourage. I'm encouraged by the mm-hmm. conversations I'm hearing. It um, some of the conversations at Rooted, operating more yeah. north side and northeast, um, in the integrated schools movement. That's encouraging, but. You also then look at data and you, that's my job is to look at data and that's And you haven't seen as much progress in terms of student outcomes as one would hope, right? And well, and for every district that takes integration seriously, another district, there's just one in Louisiana, the white parents pull out and form their own district. Mm -hmm. And you go, are we still doing this? Yeah, yeah, we are. We're still doing this. Okay, Mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I come to certain points where I'm like, oh. Where have I been? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Did not experience. I don't know. I loved school. I, I grew up in San Antonio and I went uh, in my early years through third grade. I was at a, pri- a small private school, which I loved. My third grade self thought it was amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I had good friends. Uh, and then we moved and we moved closer to be by family and we my parents just made a decision that I was old enough my sister and I were old enough to go ahead and go into our neighborhood school they wanted us to have neighborhood friends which we didn't really have in a private school because everybody was coming from right yeah. lots of different places and I'm grateful that they decided to send us to our neighborhood school we lit we went back to a neighborhood where both my grandparents families lived and so we we're really tight-knit community my grandmothers would pick us up from school very frequently. It was just a different kind of thing, and I was really happy. I always did really well in school. School was not hard for me. Yeah. Uh, my parents placed a high value on doing well in school. They're, they kind of set the tone for this is what success looks like. This is where you're going to go when you're done here. Here are some colleges that you should be interested in. It was not – it was never a hard – path for me to get from school into college and from college into a career the hard things were like how do I choose yeah you know like how I don't know what I (laughs) want to do embarrassment of riches yeah (laughs) like I don't know what I I'm not sure yes yeah (laughs) where I want to be or how how I want to do things or how far from home I really want to go like these were the things that were really tough for me I don't think I really realized 
how much harder things are for other people. Yeah. Because I grew up in a community that was an inner city community and I went to public schools in in SAISD and I just didn't experience that. It wasn't until I was out of school and into college that I really recognized like everybody did not have this clear path. Right. And I think that um, there, the value in that story is twofold. One is that people need to hear that that's happening in SAISD. I think there's a lot of stigma. Um, I grew up in more of a north side environment, hearing that the reason the inner city, quote unquote, inner city schools weren't good is because people didn't care. People yeah. didn't care about education. They didn't right. value it. It's bullshit. They do very much. They're mm-hmm. taxing themselves heavily. They are walking kids to school. Yep. They are sacrificing greatly. And there's a huge emphasis on you are going to go to college. But we also have to look at the things that we have done as a society that has made that that hard. Yes. We are throwing up barriers left and right. And quite frankly, the school system, you have that because you had parents who did that. The, the dependence on the parents to set the tone and to decide how far this kid is going to go is you are baking in inequity because nothing is more unequally distributed than parental resources. Not good parents, not the good parents, not parents with good intentions, but the resources that you have to supplement your kid's education, to take them to go see colleges, to know what's out there, to know what a Pell Grant is, to know how to fill out a FAFSA, to know the different kinds of dual credit or AP and when to start Mm -hmm. enrolling and pushing your kids and asking questions of the counselor. So much of that is on parents. That to me is how you create this um, persistent class difference where the rich get richer because it's handed down outside the system. It's handed down at home. Mm -hmm. I spent a week um, in California at a professional conference. And one of our tasks was to pick a problem of practice and kind of pull on it until we could find some root causes for that problem. And so the problem we picked is that not a lot of students fill out the FAFSA. Not enough students fill out the FAFSA. There are too few. In particular, there are too few Hispanic, economically disadvantaged students who fill out a FAFSA. Um, A FAFSA is the, I don't know what it stands for. Federal Application for... It's a financial aid application. Right. Student aid. There you go. Something like that. Thank you. So we started talking about what could all of the reasons for not filling out a FAFSA B. Um, And so, you know, first we said, well, a lot of students who choose not to, some students who choose not to fill out a FAFSA have already decided that they are not going to go to college. So the worthiness of the task, it's not, it's not. Let's start with just the FAFSA, filling out the FAFSA is a, Oh, it's, it's such a pain. It's, it's complicated. And, and you need to know that there's a, yes. there's a point. So, you know, we said, well, some students have already decided they're not going to do this. And so the worthiness of the task is just not there. Other students have a very, uh, it's hard, it's a hard form to fill out. Like it's inaccessible. It's legal jargon. It's, yeah. you have to know your parents' tax returns. And then that uncovered another set of barriers, right? Yes. Your parents had to have. Tax returns. Tax returns. Yeah. Social Some, security numbers. And exactly. And all that fun. Yes. So then, you know, that and there's like, well, what happens if you are working in a cash-based society and you don't complete tax returns? Mm-hmm. And therefore, you're not going to be okay with saying, 
I live in a cash-based society and I don't file my taxes every year. That's a huge risk of exposure. What if your parents are undocumented? That was the second risk of exposure, right? Like what if your parents are undocumented and you, you are here, you were born here, you are a citizen here. Mm -hmm. However, your parents don't have social security numbers. They do not file taxes. Then what are you to do? There's a fear there. And there's, even though there is an alternate path, there's a fear there that they are going to expose their family Mm-hmm. And they risk deportation, so they don't fill out the FAFSA. Um, there's also like a there's still a peer status that has to get worked through, right? Like yeah. that they are then exposing to their peers that they don't have the same means that their peers do. So all these things that we're sitting and we're pulling at, and I'm like, this is complicated stuff. Yeah. This is not people just don't care. I just I don't understand why we don't have a day in school where you're assigned to go fill out the FAFSA with the counselor. And if they get to the point and they say, um, I don't have access to my parents, whatever they say, Oh, okay, here's the different form that you're going to fill out. I don't understand why this is so hard. Well, I think part, it depends on how big your school is. Like that might take an act. It takes probably 15 to 20 minutes. If you have everything that you need Mm -hmm. it'll take you 15 20 minutes to actually get through the application yeah per per person yeah so if you have 1200 people 1200 seniors i mean if you have a school you know you got 300 my son's graduating class is 77 yeah that's doable doable (laughs) um so we also were like okay what do we need to put in what systems do we need to put in place and and if you're in a a high school with 1200 seniors not everybody needs the help right there are some you know you said there's i'm a big believer that if it's a systemic problem there's There's a fix we can put a man on the effing moon (laughs) like (laughs) we we can can figure this out we can figure out a lot of things but it has to be prioritized. Mm-hmm. You don't just throw it on the counselor and be like, here's one more thing for you to right. do. You do it right. Yes. Yes. So let's do so, it right. And part of it is just that people have the information, right? Like some of it is like, why didn't, I had no idea that only 23 students did that. So, and I also didn't know we didn't have a day set aside to help them do that. It's just a, ma- a matter of like, I didn't have the information I needed. Yeah. Well, it should get this done. People still, there's not 100% people, 100% of students taking the SAT and ACT. We are not to the point yet where we are looking at every single student and saying, I need to make sure you're getting all this checked off because I want you to have the option to go to college. We're not yet doing that the way that I'm going to do that for my kids and you're doing that for your kids. Right. It is still up to this this home-based resource to make that happen. Um, when really this is this would be much better allocated to the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and parents can chip in the way that we chip in with everything. If you wanted to have a PTA night where all the college-educated parents came in and, and sat down and walked somebody. everybody through the FAFSA, mm-hmm. fine, do it like that. Yeah. However you want to do it, that probably needs some thinking through. Um, <laughs> strike that. Don't do that right away. But all I'm saying is that there just needs to be a clear path. When and there's lots we of need ways to, start, to clear paths. Yes, yeah, so and we need to start with mm-hmm. every one of these kids has this checklist of things they need to do. So what do we need to do to make sure that every kid in Somerset ISD sure. is taking the SAT? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are other push points. Like there were, are people who would say, 
not every kid has to go to college to begin with. Not they everybody, don't, but they you know, all need to have they the have option. To have, exactly. That's you took the words. Sorry. Out of my mouth. It's okay. <laughs> well, and as I've I have said, and I have heard others say in this city, so your kids are your kids among those who don't have to go? Mm-hmm. Are your kids? The ones who you want to nix that for them, their junior year of high school, you want to go ahead and decide mm-hmm. when you're 16 years old that this isn't for you? No, not your kids, not my kids, those kids. I don't know. I my I don't I I, you know, I am a firm believer of like I don't know I don't know how I don't know how I feel about about like my own kids if they came to me and said I don't want to go to college they better have a damn good reason <laughs> and then I will consider. You know, then my I will kids are consider. probably going to do that to me. I can already tell. I'm, I'm like, just, I can't put too much out in the yeah. universe because it'll come by, back to bite me. Yeah. <laughs> if but I, I say like, no, my kids have to go to college. One of them will come and tell me yeah. I'm not going to college. I mom. fully anticipate one of mine being an artist <laughs> and living in my basement. I'm sure that's going to happen. But they will fill out the FAFSA. They will yes. take the SAT. Yes. Because yes. they're just we're just going to check that box while we. Yeah. And part of the work that you're doing is uncovering just those scenarios right like exactly and so what i mean this seems like an obvious question but i'm gonna ask it anyway because you just never know what you never know what i'm gonna say (laughs) (laughs) i mean from your perspective what do you what happens when people have new information or information that's like really different from all of the information that they thought was all of the information yeah people do one of two things they either adjust their behavior or they don't so they either say, oh, I'm taking this into account now and I need to figure out a solution. You know, this is a problem. I am convinced this is a problem. I need to figure out a solution. Or they say, that's fake news or you're biased or, you know, very rarely do people say I, okay, they do say this, but very, it's much more rare to have somebody say, I acknowledge that this is true. I just don't care. It's pretty rare. Yeah, that. Most people say, I don't either, I think you're wrong or, okay, you're right. What am I willing to do in response? Mm -hmm. Now, that thing they're willing to do in response may be minuscule. Yeah. It may be, I'm willing to be nice to my black friends. Right. (laughs) You know, like it could be that menial. But sometimes it's big. Sometimes you'll have people change where they have their kids Mm -hmm. in school. Sometimes you'll have people back down from taking control of the PTA to make room for others. Sometimes you will have people um, not protest against a multifamily development being built in their school zone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people change their actions when they see um, the reality behind the inequities that we're facing. Yeah. So – I guess my, my next question would be, like, have you seen those scenarios play out recently in any way that you're willing to talk about? Sure, sure. I mean, you don't have to get specific, but I just no, I, 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 like I can imagine that a lot of what you write or a lot of what mm-hmm. happens around these kinds of conversations, like school segregation or just in, how inequity shows up in different places across the city, that those are really – I would imagine pretty emotionally charged. Yes, at times. Talking about kid, if you're talking about kids, emotions start high and stay high. Nobody comes into this without vested interest. That it's very tricky. Um, I will say that 
San Antonio ISD creating their integrated diverse by design schools mm-hmm. and pushing toward, and they're not there yet, um, and they need constant accountability to do this, but also putting more resources into neighborhood schools, you know, mm-hmm. their priority around equity and inclusion and access and integration is a, is a encouraging thing. It's drawing a lot of heat. They're not making a lot of friends while they do it. Um, and that I think some of that will be spurred by how they do it. Mm-hmm. Some of that's a personality thing. Some sure. of that's a, Hey, we could have rolled that out better. Or some people are going to be opposed to things just on their face. And some of that is a don't rock the boat. There is a, there's an undercurrent of don't rock the boat. Don't call us out on the fact that some of the school districts um, thrive because parents want to be in a wealthier, wider environment Mm -hmm. and their test scores are going to go up and that's good for the district. You if you're benefiting from the system, you have a really low incentive to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. So where I've seen that, I've, I watched Alamo Heights mm-hmm. pitch a fit because they were going to get multifamily development inside their school mm-hmm. district. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been to many redistricting meetings in Northside and Northeast. I hear they're heated. I, I hear they are heated when you're wanting to change the boundaries of who gets to go to an elementary school. I'm watching one in Clarksville, Tennessee right now really? for a national story. How are you watching it? Oh, like just, media, just media and friends uh-huh. who live there um, about they're building a new school and whose kids are they going to take and what's that going to leave and who's going to go where. Mm-hmm. The second you start shifting schools, the everybody's, you know, that Avenue Q song, everybody's a little bit racist sometimes. <laughs> well, it becomes like you lead with it. Mm-hmm. People throw off the kind of polite society because they feel like there's a risk. Yeah, and I feel like some of some of what, some of that is like, I don't think it's recognizable in some ways. Like, sure, people don't even recognize that. Oh, you mean to yourself? Yeah, to yourself. Oh, yeah. Like, you're, no, I was like, like some I of it don't is know. Not, Once you see it, you kind of no, no, can't no. unsee like, it. I think yes. people, it's unrecognizable. Like, yes. they think, no, we're preserving a good thing that's yep. worth preserving, and it and it's hard. It's hard for them to take a step back and say, like, well, wh- by preserving this, what are we also preserving preserving mm-hmm. yeah like that's challenging it's super and let me tell you it's even more challenging is that people uh, here's what i hear more than anything else is well i'm not going to sacrifice my kid's future on a an experiment b social justice cause you know that's all fine and well but i'm not going to sacrifice my yeah. kid's future i was thinking yeah. about that today because i just thought well that just locks it in place because you don't get yeah. to make that choice as a kid right. and so you, the who are you making it for for your kids and we have to start and i say this as a challenge to myself we have to start looking at our kids not only as these beings who we love and we want to do the best for and whether whatever the source of that whether it's biology or just humanity mm-hmm. you love them and you want to do its best for them at the same time they are receptacles of privilege these are the kids who carry it to the next generation and who create generational wealth, who create generational privilege. This is how it moves mm-hmm. forward. That's the vehicle. It's our children. They're who yeah. get our money. They're who get our, right. they get to live in a neighborhood that they can't afford, quite frankly, because they have no money. <laughs> um, they, 
we have to be honest about our children as they're like little privilege shelters. Like we have tax <laughs> shelters, they're like little privilege shelters. And until you're willing to say, actually, what I want for my kid is to grow up in a just society. Actually, what I want for my kid is to grow up um, to be a more compassionate and justice-driven person. Until we place an equal value on that, we're not going anywhere. And we're never going to dispel the myth that you can enroll them at quote unquote inner city school. And actually, if they're coming home to a mom and dad who love them and care about oh, them, exactly. they're going to be fine. They're going to be fine. They're going to be better than fine in most cases. Yeah. Like, and then people will say, well, oh, but the good colleges recruit at Johnson and Reagan. And when I'm like, I can drive my kid to UT. Mm-hmm. We're going to be fine. Yeah. You're right. And I also think that they are going to um, recruit at <laughs> SAISD by the time it's all done. I agree. So what's the most shocking thing that you've learned or uncovered in these last seven years about San Antonio's education system? I was at Follow Media, which was a very short-lived but wonderful um, media project that we did a project about Edgewood ISD Mm -hmm. and learned how the, basically how the districts came to be and about the, when in 1949, when they started calling each other and doing the math on, okay, how much wealth do you have? How many students do you have? How are we going to make this work? And how how everybody sorted. Um, this starts with Christine Drennan. Yeah. You know, Dr. blows, blows mm-hmm. your mind. Um, and then you go dig deeper. And I am um, with a historian who was working with Follow, essentially. We dug into the story of Edgewood. And it is shameful. It's shameful the way people talked about it, the way that the students knew what was happening to them. They knew what they were being denied. Um, and we found ways to just so, just iron what it in place. What year was this? It stretched from – so the, the school district consolidation happened after the Gilmer-Aiken Act in, the, in 1949. Okay. Uh-huh. And then it stretched on through the 50s. In the 50s, we have Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm. Technically, we're supposed to desegregate. There's all sorts of hoops that white folks jumped through to make sure that Hispanic kids could – that didn't have to apply. Right. They counted them as white when they needed to. They counted them as not white when they – in their hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have – so then you have all the trickery around Brown v. Board. And then you move into the 60s and the 70s, the walkouts, the Civil Rights Mm -hmm. Commission – and we haven't really Guys, touched this it is since like then. In our generation. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? No. Like this this is not like This is an ancient history. No, this is in our generation, in our city. And we're doubling down on it every day. Mm-hmm. That's the real kicker. It's not like we're going, oh man, this has been really hard to undo, but we're all working together and to making No. We're doubling down on this every day. Mm-hmm. Because we still have 17 separate school districts. We have. Because anytime you bring up consolidation, people get really upset. Mm -hmm. And that's not the only thing. I mean, those borders. So Jane Jacobs, famous city planner, said whenever you put like a railroad or a hard Mm -hmm. border through a neighborhood, you stop the foot traffic. And foot traffic is what carries like the lifeblood of a city. It's where people spend money. So Mm -hmm. the closer you are to a hard border, the more things shrivel up and die. Money can't cross borders. Money can't cross the school district borders. Um, Right. We couldn't desegregate. We can't desegregate across school borders. 
everything that we want to do stops at the border of the school district. And we have got our neighborhood segregation is so deep that our neighborhoods are all well ensconced within the borders of a school district. This is another thing I think people have a hard time recognizing. What? <laughs> like if you are living in, I don't know, anywhere north of 1604 or, oh God, or if you're pretty living close north. to 1604, yeah. Yeah. I don't think you recognize that districts are particularly, I don't think that's on your radar that our city is so segregated. I will tell you, I grew up in... I mean, I'm overgeneralizing, so please... I'm, no, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> I, I, I feel like that's my thought is that I don't... I don't think that's on every... I think that's a hard thing to recognize. Absolutely. So if you... I grew up, again, pretty pretty well north. Um, I had never been to the deep west side until I started reporting. Never. Um, there are still... Parts of the South Side, yeah. after after concerted effort <laughs> that I haven't really been to. Um, likewise, if you had me and Saldana in here, Ray Saldana yeah. in here, who we are roughly the same age, if you talked about us growing up, if we talked about our experiences and sure. how long it took to like see the same thing, see right. the same bookstore, to see the same stuff, we could, we were practically adults, <laughs> you know. And you're talking about two people who grew up here. Right. But on far opposite sides of town who went to similar colleges who have had very similar lives since then, but growing up didn't even move in the same world. Right. Right. And, and my were, world and had, you weren't thinking about the other world. That's what I'm saying. Like you Absolutely not. We no, didn't know it you existed. You were not <laughs> thinking about what's happening at the corner of Guadalupe and Brazos. Like you were no. not thinking about that. It's no. not recognizable if you're not directly going and seeing it or you aren't impacted by it or you're not you just it's not on your radar and let me tell you a sad thing that happens is that when a kid like me does encounter that on some you know mission inner sure. city mission trip or whatever totally. that thing is that 100%. we're doing you know when we come and down to feed people or something d- oh, do ballet classes yeah. or something yeah. i know i know oh, exactly my God. what you're yes. saying <laughs> um well when we do that we see this and our young people's hearts are are touched by that and when they see that and their their sense of injustice which is so much more acute when they're young they see that and they go wait a minute no and they start to feel something and then we the adults swoop in and give them an alternate narrative we give them a narrative that says they don't they don't care yeah their families their families just don't value that they value um staying close to home um, they've, uh, and so you have in order, like I always describe it as the tip of the spear, you know, hits them in the heart. And instead of leaning in and letting it really get them, we pull them back and we do that to ourselves. Every time you, you feel that spear, you lean away and we got to stop doing that. We've got to start exposing yeah. and then leaning in harder on that spear because, not because we need white tears, not because feeling bad is going to fix it, but because we've got to stop those alternate narratives. We need a better narrative. And that's my job. Yeah. Is to say, here's the spear. You're going to lean on it because only by leaning on it are you going to feel the fullness of this narrative. You've got to feel the pain mm-hmm. and the struggle and the in order to see how the aspirations and the dreams and the the yeah. fullness of what's here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Totally. And I, I feel too, like sometimes I've, and this has maybe been my own, a little push up for myself has been to not feel like the main objective would be to leave where you start, to go mm. away from, you know, to break the mold or get out. I actually feel like it's not so much because I have lots of friends who who lived where I live who don't live where I live anymore mm-hmm. because they have garnered more wealth than they started with in their choices to not live where we live. They've moved farther and farther and farther north. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that it's always on their daily agenda to think about what's happening inside of our little city's nucleus. So I think, too, that that also is a narrative that we could push on, right? That Absolutely. He, I don't know. Well, I, and I feel like there's a, there's two com- there's two communities need, that need to have a conversation. And I, I'm not here to tell people who grew up um, with very little what they need to do. Sure. They need um, – that is a conversation that they need to have among their family, among the people they grew up with, mm-hmm. among the people they feel loyalty to. Um and I think who I can speak to is the community that grew up already yeah, out there, already isolated and, and pushed mm-hmm. out. I, I say isolated. It's not really isolated. Yeah, I, I know. grew up segregated. Sure. I'll say that. Um, the community, I need to speak to my community and say, you have what you have because of a really unjust system. And yes, you worked hard, but you worked hard in a system that treated you fair on the whole. Mm-hmm. And again, everybody, you're going to get a billion comments on this being like, <laughs> I was totally screwed and I, you know, didn't, I grew up poor. I'm not here to define white privilege for you. I'm here to say that I and people like me grew up as the beneficiaries of an unjust system. And we need, it is on us to, stop reinforcing it yeah we we're not the saviors we're not the ones who are going to fix it but we can certainly stop breaking it and every time somebody figures out a fix we need to stop pulling the rug out from under them yeah which actually is a perfect segue to what i thought this season would kind of debunk right so miseducation is really about challenging some preconceived notions that people generally have about the work that educators do, especially here in San Antonio. And one of them, I feel like, is that school is actually somebody else's problem. (laughs) Right. If you are not a teacher or an administrator, uh, then it's really not your problem, and it's not something that you have to solve for. And certainly everybody has their own mission and their own calling in life, and everybody can't be teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think that it is a – well, I'm going to – I know what I think. Yeah. What do you think? What do I think? (laughs) Um, I think that all of our social institutions belong to us. And so just like it is my job to call the police if I see something, it is my job to – um, write to my congressman. It is my job to vote. It is my job to seek the best for the education system. Um, I th- I think that as a parent, and I and earlier I did say, you know, we got to stop putting so much on parents. I 
think there's a way to engage parents in a way that says this belongs to all of us, Mm -hmm. not get in here and fight for your individual kid to get what they need. If we do a better job Mm -hmm. of equity, then we can say, okay, parents, here is, here's where you get to come on board and support. And so I think, I do think there's a role for the parents, but as far as a society before you have kids, after you have kids, like after they're Mm -hmm. long gone, um, it still belongs to you because this is how we're building society. This is our social fabric and so it's absolutely it absolutely belongs to you and so you are you have ownership of the harm that it's doing and you have ownership of the good that it's doing yeah so you should care absolutely wherever you are whether you are a parent mm-hmm. or not right it's it it's actually all of our problem it's, and it's it's a burden we all should feel for like I really do think that not enough people talk about what to your point is going really well and what are the bright spots we tend to focus on the parts that are broken Mm -hmm. Um, but the focus on the parts that are broken aren't often coupled with the solutions that might work exactly (laughs) there's and I will say I, I just got back from a from a conference, the Solutions Journalism Network, there are people who are working on this. Like, how do we tell better stories that inspire hope? Yeah. Because if we get into fatalism, and I will say, too, that it, what has led to all of this, the schools are broken, the schools mm-hmm. are broken, it leads parents to say, well, then my job is just to find the what's best for, what's best for my kid. And yep. I, again, I'm not going to begrudge any parent of course. who chooses any different school. We're in a choice school. It's a district choice school. Um, however, I do think that wherever your kid is, is almost beside the, it's almost beside the point. You're all of these schools, all of these kids are yours. We belong to each other. I believe that. So we need to do what's best for the Mm -hmm. whole system. And there's a good case to be made for, well, putting your kid in it is the best thing. And you got to figure out where you sit with that. And there's a case to be made for. Um, moving into a more integrated neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, and changing the distribution of property wealth. And mm-hmm. how do we do that? Oh, we got to think about gentrification. It's all complicated. It's so There's complicated. no easy fixes and nobody's going to feel good and great about everything that they do. But it, it's so much better to wrestle with that than just to go forget it, hands up. I'm just going to go be in my enclave, do what's best for me and put my head down and ignore it because not everybody can do that. Yep. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Thank you. Um, thanks for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you for I, having me. <laughs> I enjoy talking to you. I always feel, I, you know, I say this a lot of a lot of the guests that come on the podcast. I feel smarter having finished a conversation <laughs> with the people that I get to talk to. And you are definitely in that same group. So I well, appreciate it. Um, do you have any questions for me? Because I know I know I always forget to ask, like, what do you want to know? Is there anything before we say goodbye that you're oh, thinking through? Um, I, I'm always curious about people's point of view who've been in the system in mm-hmm. the, you know, the places where you sure. have been a school leader, how you see the inequities play out, how you see it all. What was your perspective? I mean, I think, you know, some of it is stuff that I'm still unearthing in me, right? Like I said, I didn't have that hard of a job in school. You know, I, it wasn't School was not a hard job for me. So I don't know that I, there have been moments in my life 
that I can look back on and say, that felt so shitty and unfair. And that never should have happened to me. Like that teacher telling me that if I, I did go to a choice school um, for high school. And I had a teacher who said to me that if I couldn't, if my parent couldn't drive me to school for tutoring, I rode the bus. And she said it was not her problem. That that was not her problem. I was mm. going to have to figure something out. And at the time when you're 15, you're like, well, shoot, okay. man. I got to go find some another way. To, I got to find a friend or find one of my family members that can help me through yeah. this course. But looking back, I think like, what a – that – that just was not okay. Not a good answer. Not a good answer. Not okay. Um, so there have been moments where I can look back and think that was that was just not fair. That didn't it shouldn't have happened that way. Mm-hmm. Um, or I can I can look back and think through times when I have seen my friends, good friends, who have just really struggled, and then and and then I think through some of the student stories that I've carried. Right, like where I have had a student who I still communicate with whose family just did not. I mean, there's not a nice way to say this, so I'm just going to tell you. They didn't want her. Yeah. That's just – that's just the – that's the reality. Yeah. So I admit those kids exist in every socioeconomic group. (laughs) And so everything was that much harder because to get a permission slip signed Mm -hmm. was hard. Like – yeah. And contingent on all kinds of made up stuff. Well, you, if this, if if you want to go here, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And then it would change. And then it was just a hard. Everything about school was complicated because her her parent just did not feel like dealing with it. You know, mm-hmm. like those things where I think that's not, man, that was a hard. That is just hard for anybody anywhere. Yeah. And then in my life as a teacher. You know, look, I mean, in my life as a school administrator, being held to accountability systems that I did not feel like I had the, I really had my hand on a lever that would be impactful. I didn't yeah. feel that, you know, I always felt like, sure, if every kid came to school fed yeah. and well slept, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could impact student outcomes mm-hmm. at a faster rate. If we were all starting if, from the starting line. Right. Like <laughs> if everybody in my in my building, came to school, just two things, fed and well slept. Yeah. That those two factors alone would have made huge impact, right? Mm-hmm. I can influence at best. I have no control over whether or not somebody gets a good night's rest or comes to or eats. So these are things I still have to unearth for me. Yeah. Like how inequities showed up in my school. I think it was not fair to hold teachers and administrators accountable for things they don't really they only can influence at best yeah Uh, i I think our accountability system is just massively inequitable i think the way schools are funded are massive it's getting better but it's not baby steps it baby steps it's not anywhere close to being equitable it's well it's not having the right support systems in the right communities it's it's not having access to the support systems. It's me, you know, feeling like, how can I get a social worker that is going to literally cost me $90,000 and I have a discretionary budget of 11000 yeah. Like, how am I going to – how are these things going to – Well, and you were in a school that was 99.5% on free and reduced lunch. 
how different would it have been if that was 50%? Right. How different would that have been if it was 30%? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're talking about thing the the way inequity shows up, you got to start there with yeah, more supports in the community would sure, be great. But what I if would need four were, times the support? You yeah. know what I mean? Like concentrated mm-hmm. poverty is something we all did on purpose and you saw it in 800 kids. Mm-hmm. And there are elementary schools in this city that have one and 2%. They don't have kids. You know, if their if, kid shows up hungry, if a kid shows up hungry, the teacher It's manageable. Yes, can feed it's, them. Right. It's a manageable It's still terrible. Sure. And I, yes. And it's still hard. <laughs> but it's way more manageable. The problem at that point hasn't overshadowed the resources right. that we have to meet it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. That was a long answer to your question. But I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> that's that's where awesome. I am. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. All right. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miseducation. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.